Welcome to my podcast, Aging with Grace, designed for anyone who wants to enjoy the journey of a lifetime after age 55. This series provides useful tips, not only for taking care of yourself, family, and friends, but also how to enjoy life more abundantly than many even thought possible for people ages 55, 65, 75, and beyond. Some of our guests are doing what many listeners only dream about or maybe even never thought possible. So relax, enjoy their stories on this unique lifestyle podcast, and be prepared to share your own along with hearing useful tips and vital information for everyone aging with grace. To our listeners, again, welcome to Aging with Grace. Each program that you listen to on my podcast will always include some type of trivia, little-known facts, forms of humor, just things in everyday life that maybe folks would love to know more about, maybe things that have piqued your interest. As I share two ideas, two pieces of trivia shortly, I want you to write down my email address and think about trivial things that you think other podcast listeners would enjoy hearing and send them to me at D-A-L-E or Dale at AWG55.com and make sure they're in the following format so I can share them with our readers and all of us can enjoy them together. For today, there's, our topic is going to be on telemedicine on medicine. And before we begin, before we meet Dr. Thaddeus J. Bell, who's a uh, general practitioner in North Charleston, South Carolina, he's also the founder and CEO of Closing the Gap in Healthcare. Before we listen to Dr. Bell and our interview about telemedicine, I'd like to share the following trivia with you. The first one comes courtesy of a very well-known product. And you're going to know the name of the product in just a few minutes. In 1865, English doctor Joseph Lister became the first surgeon to perform an operation in a room that had been sterilized with antiseptic, a practice that until then was very uncommon. There was your first clue, Joseph Lister. Second clue, after Lister's practice was discovered to reduce mortality rates, it became a more widespread practice, especially given mortality rates were starting to decline following surgical procedures. Inspired by Dr. Lister, there's your third clue, folks. What product are we working our way towards? Inspired by Dr. Lister, Robert Wood Johnson and Dr. Joseph Lawrence modernized surgical sterilization procedures and established a company and created a product in 1879 called, wait for it, yes, you got it, Listerine, a mouthwash used for cleaning mouths and sterilizing surgical wounds. By 1895, Listerine was sold to a large pharmaceutical company and dentists began to observe the cleaning power of the mouthwash. So I wonder who was the first person, right, to say, let me put this in my mouth, swish it around, spit it out and say, you know what? How's that smell? I guess that smells better. And maybe people start using this and that would in 1914, Listerine became 
the first prescribed mouthwash to be sold over-the-counter in the United States. And now you know the rest of the story about the origins of a very popular product of Listerine. As we now welcome our first guest, Dr. Thaddeus Bell from North Charleston, South Carolina. Our next guest is going to be an interview with Dr. Thaddeus John Bell on telemedicine, or what's also commonly referred to as telehealth. If you have not noticed it yet, telemedicine is the newest trend on the medical front, also referred to as telehealth. It is defined as the use of electronic information and telecommunications technologies to support long-distance clinical healthcare. Technologies doctors may use to treat their patients, including video conferencing, the internet, store and forward imaging, streaming media, in addition to, to wireless communications. To discuss this brave new front, this brave new frontier is our first guest, Dr. Thaddeus John Bell, who practices medicine in North Charleston, South Carolina. Dr. Bell was a flight surgeon in the United States Air Force. He's a fellow in the American Academy of Family Medicine and was named Family Practice Physician of the Year by the South Carolina Academy of Family Physicians. He also retired as an Associate Dean of Diversity at the Medical University of South Carolina. Dr. Bell is also founder and CEO of Closing the Gap in Healthcare. Welcome to Aging with Grace, Dr. Bell, as I remain truly honored to have you as my guest today. How are you, sir? I'm doing fine. Thank you very much for asking me. Well, we're glad you're part of the program today, and thank you for being on, Dr. Bell. And uh, Charleston is one of my favorite cities. How's the weather there this morning? Charming as usual? Absolutely beautiful. It certainly is. Very good. Well, Dr. Bell, let's kind of uh, kick off our discussion for our guests, and I think uh, maybe we should start with an overview. What are some of the general definitions of telemedicine? Well, I think it's still largely being defined, but I think the definition that's being used today is the ability to communicate with a patient in his own environment by using a cell phone or a cell phone plus video conferencing to make an assessment of uh, the patient's uh, clinical situation at the time that you're talking to him or her. Mm -hmm. And then, Dr. Bell, as part of that process of speaking with your patients on the phone, I guess you encourage them to be as precise as possible about their diagnosis or what uh, conditions they're, they're experiencing? Well, let me give you a little background information from my perspective. Uh, I've been in practice now for 44 years. I have an excellent relationship with my patients. So, therefore, I know them very well. And I think that when I talk to them over the telephone, number one, I've discovered that they are very appreciative of me calling them up to check on them. And so it's like a, an ongoing conversation that I would have with them if they were in my office. I think that um, I've been blessed that I've been able to be in private practice 
So I am not governed by the rules of getting people in and out. And so I can really develop a personal relationship with my patients. And so for five minutes, we may talk about something that's totally unrelated to their medical issues. We may talk about what's going on in their family. Uh, We may talk about politics. I may hear uh, just what they want to talk about before I actually get into their medical history. So I think that gives me a leg up in assessing these patients. And Mm -hmm. then, of course, the other thing that I do that, that they really get a kick out of and that is, I ask them when I call them, will they have for me their blood pressure reading that they need to take at home? I ask them to take their temperature. And the one that I get a lot of pushback on that they don't like, but they do it for me. And that is take their weight. And of course, if they're <laughs> diabetic, I'll have them to, you know, to check their blood sugar for me. So. Mm-hmm. When, when I call them and ask for that information, it's in their environment. They've already taken it, and they give me that information, and then we go from there. Mm-hmm. So I guess then the one thing that has not changed or which maybe adds more value to telehealth is like the Norman Rockwell concept of the doctor, the country doctor, not that you're a country doctor, but the fact that you're taking time, spending time, And from there, having that relationship makes them more forthcoming in terms of what's going on with them as they discuss their medical issues with you. Would that be a fair assessment? I think that's a a very accurate assessment of that relationship, yes. So they are very forthcoming in telling me what's going on. Is it possible that telehealth is more applicable for mild conditions? Like if someone has a cold, if someone has a cough or a seasonal allergy, is it more applicable for those kind of a situations versus more challenging uh, medical situations, Dr. Bell, in your opinion? I think it can be used very well in that situation, particularly with patients who are challenged. I think that, uh, you know, a case in point, oftentimes I feel a little guilty. I have a lady who comes to see me about every three or four months. She uh, has about two or three medical problems. She's uh, in her late 60s. But I hate to, you know, have that lady come to see me when uh, she's doing fine. You know, when she can tell me that over the telephone and all her vital signs are normal. And I trust what she tells me because I know she's going to tell me the truth. So I feel I, I feel a little taken back. And I didn't mention that this lady has to catch the bus to come to see me. Oh, no. And it, it, it makes, yeah, so it makes sense that it would be a lot better on this lady if she did not have to catch the bus, stand on the corner to wait and come to see me. But I, one time I asked her about that and she told me, she said, look, it's worth it. I come in here, I sit down, you don't rush me. I sit down and I talk to you and I feel like I feel real good you know, when I leave here. So I think in, in situations like that, telehealth would be a lot better for that lady. What about the other side of telehealth? If you had some, have you ever delivered some bad news to a patient? And if so, would that not be better delivered face-to-face versus over the phone or a computer? 
That's an excellent question. And that depends on the patient. There are certain advantages and disadvantages to doing telehealth when you have to give a patient bad news. I prefer giving patients bad news in person, but I do understand that in some situations, bad news can be given to a patient. If you've had a relationship with this patient for a while and the news is continuing to get bad, then giving bad news with the patient at home, surrounded by family members, is a good thing, you know, can be a good thing. But I typically do not like to give patients bad news. For example, you know, telling a patient that her mammogram is abnormal and is is consistent with caps. I'd rather have that conversation when I'm looking at the patient and I can gauge how the patient is accepting that information. I'm also a touchy doctor. I like to touch people. Yes. And so I feel I feel better when I'm talking to uh, one of my elderly patients and hold their hand and let them know I do understand what's going on and I'm not going to abandon them in that situation. So it has its pros and its cons. Mm-hmm. Dr. Bell, in reading and researching this information for our discussion on telemedicine, I was reading an article that said that some patients can actually avoid travel costs and be able to speak with a specialist who's located far away from their homes. And some hospitals like in Massachusetts and also I think in California had recorded anywhere from a 10 to 20 fold increase in telemedicine. So the question is in terms of a specialist on a particular medical challenge that you're having, how does that work? Because he has not seen me. You, you, you made a very interesting reference to having a relationship well, I don't have a relationship with this guy in California, but you know, I still want him to diagnose me. And I'm not sure how that works with a, with a physician who's at distance. How does that work with my local physician who may be in Charleston or here in Louisville, where I am or wherever? It depends what the situation is. If you're asking for a second opinion just based on medical records and laboratory data, and you're asking the doctor to look at that information and then give you an opinion based on the data that he has. Telemedicine may be a good idea, but it's going to be very difficult for you to get a second opinion if that doctor, in fact, needs to examine you to get a complete picture of what's going on with you. So it it depends a lot upon the information that the second opinion is going to be giving of the patient. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I can see where uh, something like that uh, would work. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. I have a patient right now. We need to get a second opinion regarding his prostate cancer. Okay. He's been mm-hmm. seen here at the medical university, but he's going to be going to John Hopkins. Now we've already set all of the information, but they said, hey, we want to actually see you because we want to examine you ourselves. Uh And so that's a different situation. So it depends upon, you know, it depends upon the situation. 
The other issue, though, that I want to make sure that we understand is that, you know, how long is telehealth going to be paid for by the Medicare insurance company and also by Blue, Blue Cross Blue Shield or the other insurance carriers? That still is very, very much up in the air and is going to have a lot is going to have a lot to do whether or not how successful telemedicine is going to be. So that has to get then into the reimbursement costs and whether or not they're going to uh, pay for the visits. Is that what you're alluding to, Dr. Bell, in addition to diagnosis or, or what do you, can you speak more uh, that's specifically? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Because, you know, we are already being told that we can continue doing telehealth for right now while COVID-19 we are dealing with, but we don't know how long that's going to last. And then, of course, there are some other companies that require telemedicine to be more than just talking over the telephone. You have to have the appropriate video equipment to be able to visually see the patient. Mm -hmm. And so all of those things are going to have to be put in place in order for that visit to be paid for. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And you alluded to having them set themselves up prior to, or prepare themselves would be a better word, prior to the visit with you online, if you will. So I gather that would mean the patient has to have a stable internet connection. They have to have uh, good lighting. So how does that work in the age of the digital divide in terms of not only the setup, in terms of making sure you have a stable internet connection, but also how does that work with regard to the digital divide, which separates some of our communities? Uh, that's, an excellent, uh, that's an excellent question. With the telehealth that I do in my practice, if the patient has a cell phone or a telephone at home, that's enough for me to do my evaluation. So obviously that does not involve any visual. That's all audio. Okay, so I have tried to use the video apps and what have you. And unless a patient is, I guess the word that you want to use is the patient is accustomed to dealing with um, apps and being able to manipulate a modern day phone. That's not going to work because it's going to take too long and the patient is going to get too frustrated. Now, if the patient has a grandchild or grandson that can do all of that for him and make sure when I make that call that they're going to be sitting right there at the computer, that that's going to happen, works fine. But for the most part, that does not happen in my world. So it does pose a challenge to more senior, more senior patients. No, no, no. You're absolutely right. The point that I was going to make is that a lot of my patients are still using flip phones. So, <laughs> <laughs> I, so think, they, I think I saw one use, of those at the Smithsonian, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so they, that gives you an idea, you know, gives you an idea of what I'm working with. <laughs> Fair enough. Which is probably why, you know, at our home, you know, we get a new TV and call the kids over, let them program it, you know. so That's, a, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> Dr. Bell, as we go to our close, I wanted you to also comment on pharmacies also can provide telehealth services for minor health issues. And 
What are your thoughts on the uh, pharmaceutical uh, pharmacies in this regard of telemedicine? I think that the uh, pharmacist is a source of information that probably has not been tapped like it needs to be. I've encouraged a lot of my patients to try to establish a relationship with the pharmacist, primarily for the sake of helping them get the cost of their medications down. The pharmacists uh, oftentimes will know where patients can get certain prescriptions at a cheaper rate. A lot of patients don't are not aware that the pharmacists actually belong to a club themselves in which they can get they can get medications for patients, uh, you know, at a cheaper rate. So I think that you know I think that that's a good idea. I'm not impressed right now that a lot of the pharmacies like CVS and Walgreen and some of the other big pharmacies that are in cities, I'm not impressed that they are willing to take the time to talk to patients about medications in a way in which patients would feel comfortable because they're just so busy and I'm just, I'm just not impressed that they are willing to do that. But I think that as time progresses, that may change. Well, very good. That paints a very uh, rosy picture for the future in terms of folks who are considering telehealth. And I gather telemedicine and telehealth are kind of interchangeable. We've used that throughout the program, but I guess they're pretty much interchangeable concepts, correct? Is it speaking about the same thing? Yeah, I think you're, I think you're absolutely correct about that. Before we leave, though, I, I like to say that up until, until COVID came, I had never talked to a patient on the telephone under the guise of telehealth. But now that I've been doing it, I've found it to be very, very helpful. And I think that there is a place for it. I hope that insurance companies will allow doctors to use it, particularly for a lot of elderly patients and et cetera. Well, very good. Well, Dr. Bell, I certainly appreciate your time. And as uh, we wrap up, reminding uh, folks who are listening to this podcast that before you call your doctor, be it Dr. Bell or another excellent practitioner, make sure that you're in a quiet room, make sure you have a stable internet connection, and prepare a list of questions in advance so that you're prepared and able and willing to just share your issues, whatever challenges you may have with your physician. This has been an interview with uh, Dr. Thaddeus John Bell from uh, Charleston, South Carolina. Dr. Bell, I sincerely appreciate your time, and thank you so much for being our guest today on Aging with Grace. Thank you very much. It's certainly been a pleasure. And hopefully maybe there's something that might stir in your mind to share about a little known product as we move to our second piece of trivia. As we're looking at the world of medicine, specifically telemedicine, definitely a 21st century concept. But before we get there, we're going to go back to even precede Dr. Joseph Lister in 1865. We're going to go back even further. We're going to go back to the period of pirating. And when I say pirates, who comes to mind? For certainly older listeners, Johnny Rogers comes to mind. And then more recent, Perhaps younger listeners, still folks in their 60s, their charming 60s and 70s, we remember Jack Sparrow, 
Pirates of the Caribbean. Yes. And pirating was most popular, by the way, the 1660s through the 1730s. And some pirates were still found floating around in the 1830s. You you like that floating around the ocean? Okay, anyway. But uh, the period we're going to talk about with pirating was most popular was in the 1660s to the 1730s. And if if I say pirate, if I say pirate, what comes to mind? Yeah, one of those things is going to be an earring, right? Well, listen to this. Pirates believed that piercing the ears and wearing an earring improved eyesight. This idea, surely scoffed at for centuries, has been reevaluated in light of acupuncture theory. You see, what the pirates knew, and what we did not know until more recent medical practices, until specifically acupuncture, that the point on the lobe where the ear was pierced corresponds to the auricular acupuncture point controlling, you got it, the eyes. So who knew? Pirates knew way ahead of their time that by wearing an earring and piercing the lobe, it gave them sharper eyesight. And so therefore, they had greater vision being out on the open seas. And now you know the rest of the story as to pirates wearing earrings, which improve their eyesight, as proven by modern acupunctural theory, that puncturing the ear on the lobe corresponds to the auricular acupuncture point controlling the eyes. So now you got two pieces of trivia, two things that you can wow your friends with, sometimes make people groan, because we're also going to have some bad jokes, folks. I can't wait to share those with you. But I thought both of these would be um, kind of in keeping with a more serious topic today, which is on telemedicine. So again, if you have any trivia, you have some things you want to share, send them to me, D-A-L-E, that's Dale, at awg55.com. Our next guest for today's edition of Aging with Grace is Lily Liu. Lily is a AARP historian emeritus. Lily, how are you today? And I understand you're calling us from Washington, D.C., is that correct? Yes, I'm based in D.C. How you doing, Dale? I'm having a really good time. Our show is going well, and I'm really excited to have you because you're going to be able to share not only some quotes from Ethel Percy Andrus, but for our listeners, tell us exactly who was Ethel Percy Andrus and what does she mean in terms of aging? What's her impact? Thank you for this honor of being with you and your audience. It really is a great idea to have a show with Aging with Grace as its title. That is truly what was the vision of the founder of AARP, Ethel Percy Andrus. Andrus spelled A-N-D-R-U-S. That was her maiden name. She never married. And she got a PhD in education. So I tend to call her Dr. Andrus. Dr. Andrus was actually born in the 19th century, 1881. In 1958, she founded AARP, then known as the American Association of Retired Persons, because she realized that in retirement, people needed information and other resources. And so she founded AARP in 1958 
And today it's almost 38 million members strong. Wow. Can you imagine what this would do if she had a crystal ball? And I think she was uh, born in California and then moved to Chicago, if, my, if I'm correct. Can you imagine her having a crystal ball and seeing that impact as an educator in her early days when, let alone not only aging or folks who are, who are aging with grace or getting older, but educators really were restricted in terms of what they could do, what women educators could do. Is that correct? Now, I'm trying to define the period more, if you will. Yes, that's really interesting that you observe that. What happened to her was, you know, there were only about two professions open to women back then. If you imagine her being born in 1881, it was mostly nursing or education. And I have, you know, since found out as I started doing research about her life from people who had aunts, great aunts who would be fired if they got married, who would be fired if they became pregnant. So in that era, all she could do was either become a teacher or a nurse. And so she chose education and she had a distinguished career. She taught, for example, in Southern California. And before that, you were so right about the places that influenced her. Born in 1881 in San Francisco, but because her own father wanted to better himself, he went to get a law degree at Northwestern University. So as a result, her formative years were spent in Chicago. Oh, you know, mm-hmm. that sound that you just heard in the background? I don't know if you yep. knew, but I'm a caregiver for my mother. And that oh. was the that um told me that she's going to have to have her next medicine. So everything's all prepared. But I'm glad that happened because I think so many of us baby boomers are juggling being a caregiver for children and Mm. a caregiver for elders, which is why we really are the sandwich generation, which is another reason what you have as your show is so important is what are we all going to do as we reinvent aging? And that's what Dr. Andrus did. So what happened was she was an educator And then she retired and literally found a former colleague, another teacher who had retired because of poverty, reduced to living in a chicken house, a chicken coop. It is a true story. I have found her own writings that talked about it. So the first thing she did was- Like a chicken coop? Like a chicken coop with wire and all of that? Seriously? Oh, yeah. It was that bad because, you know, when you're in poverty, you can only do what you can do. So she was homeless. And all she could do was live in a chicken house, a chicken coop. So many people don't believe that story. But I said it is indeed true because I found Dr. Andrus's own writings. And to this day, it just breaks my heart when you think about, you know, a distinguished member of the community, an educator. But in retirement back then, there was nobody that would, no company that would insure with health insurance older persons in retirement. So right. then woman had one illness and then fell into poverty and became homeless and ended up living in a chicken coop. So the point is, is that after a distinguished career, you know, 40 some years in education, first um, teaching in Chicago, you know, after she graduated because her family had moved there so her father could get a law degree at Northwestern. But as he aged and needed to go back to California for warmer weather, They settled in Southern California, and that's where she spent the majority of her teaching career in Southern California. As a matter of fact, 
the first woman high school principal of a large urban campus in Los Angeles in the whole mm-hmm. state of California. Wow, that's quite an so, accomplishment. Yeah. So if you think about her, she was always a leader. And I think that's what drove her when she found this former colleague living in a chicken coop was this should not be happening in America. So she kept thinking and thinking, became an advocate, tried to do things. And then she realized, Dr. Andrus realized that all over the United States, there were some existing retired teachers associations But like the concept of taking one stick, you can break it very easily. But if you Mm -hmm. bundle them together, it's harder to break. So she bundled all of these existing state retired teachers association into one thing called the National Retired Teachers Association. And she founded that in 1947. And as a result of finding, you know, benefits for them, being able to get a group health insurance plan for them. By July of 1956, that's nine years before Medicare, to be able to have mm-hmm. these retired teachers feel safety, you know, to have insurance right. after right. retirement for health. And so then thousands of people wrote to her and said, you know, we cannot qualify. We're not retired teachers. So it would take her another 11 years. But that's why in 1958, she founded AARP. And then, as they say, the rest is history. <laughs> that is such a great story. And some, from such a prolific leader, dare we say, even a visionary, I understand that there's quite a few writings that you have collected. I guess these would be pearls from Ethel Percy Andrus. And given our title today, uh, first of all, confirm that there are such writings. Yes, we, you've, you, as an archivist, you've been able to collect quite a few stories. Yes. What's so interesting is that when you think about someone who is an educator, she knew the power of words. So as soon as she founded NRTA and AARP, she started a magazine for the members. So for example, to today, AARP The Magazine, AARP The Magazine continues as it began in 1958 with every two months you get a magazine. And she started that right away. And it's from those editor's columns, she was always the editor column writer, that we have these wonderful recordings of her vision of what aging can be and should be, and not what society has done. They were not aging with grace back then. And that was her fight, to bring older persons back into society. Well, that's awesome. And I really appreciate your time today, Lily. And as we conclude, you know, our topic today was on telehealth and the new frontier in terms of physicians sharing, reaching, teaching, healing from a distance their patients. And I understand that there's a saying from Ethel Percy Andrus, which is on point with our title today of telehealth. Yes. It was so much fun for me to find this one because it's spot on with your vision of what your guest has spoken about and what your aging with grace is. This is what she wrote. Can you imagine in the 1960s? And it's about why are we talking about curing illness? Why not prevent it in the first place? May I read it for you? Please do. We'd love to hear it. Can you imagine, Dale, that Ethel Percy Andrews wrote this in the 1960s? She had a vision of why are we talking about illness? Why are we not talking about preventing illness? So these are words that she wrote, and I quote, 
we are witnessing a great revolution in the practice of the medical profession. The change is a shift of emphasis from the repair and the rehabilitation of the stricken body to the constructive approach of a program of optimum health, of prevention rather than of cure. That was so good. And that is so spot on from Lily Liu, who's our archive, who is an AARP historian emeritus. And Lily, this has been such a delightful conversation. I wonder if you could come back for our next podcast. Oh, I would be honored to. Thank you for the invite. Very good. That was Lily Liu, AARP historian emeritus. And this has been Dale Josie, your host of Aging with Grace. This is a podcast that offers possibilities and gives us a time of understanding that getting older and aging is not a time of diminishment, but we submit it's a time of application. So thank you for listening today. And I certainly hope you'll join us on our next broadcast of Aging with Grace. Good day. Thank you so much for taking a few minutes to listen to my podcast, Aging with Grace 55 Plus, presented in collaboration with Kentucky Chapter AARP. Keep in mind, aging is a lifelong process that if you choose to see new possibilities, you will find them every day. Aging is not a time of diminishment, but applying lessons taught by some of our best teachers, including experience. I'd love to hear from you. So reach out to me, dale at awg55.com by email, or visit our website, awg55.com. And now for a last thought for the day, good habits make time your ally, bad habits make time your enemy. So until next time, this has been Dale Josie, host of Aging with Grace. Aging with Grace.